that might have more to do with the characterization in the writing of the movie, but it... I really should have muted my phone. Yeah, yeah. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, welcome to episode 38 of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we are talking about the newest, highest-grossing movie of all time, I'm very sure, Solo, A Star Wars Story. I am here talking about it with my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, before we do our non-spoiler portion of the show, I have a slightly spoilery question for you. Is there an extremely mundane and pedantic reason that you have the name that you do? There is. And what is that? Because Mom gave it to me. That's amazing. You know, I want to see that in your origin story movie. When they finally get around to Scott, a Scott story. (laughs) That's my spinoff, right? Scott, a Glenn Butler podcast hour spectacular? Sure. That one's a spectacular. This is the spectacular. Of course, because you have more Elon. (laughs) Exactly. And you know the reason I have the name that I do? Why do you have the name that you do? Uh, Someone asked me to carry their suitcase one time. And I didn't, and I became a rebel, and an outlaw, and a scoundrel. And that's why I'm the way I am. So let's get into the newest Star War, uh, Solo, a Star War story. For our non-spoiler part, let's just talk about our general expectations and thoughts on the movie. What were you expecting this movie to be, and how did it live up to that? I was expecting this movie to be god-awful. Mm-hmm. The trailers looked god-awful, the previews looked god-awful, the commercials looked god-awful, Alden Ehrenreich's performance looked god-awful, everything I heard about the story sounded god-awful. I was expecting this to be prequel-level bad. Like, not worse than Revenge of the Sith. You can't be worse than Revenge of the Sith, but I was expecting it to possibly be worse than Attack of the Clones. 
Well, we talked about our ranking in, in our last Star Wars show, but yeah, I'm not sure I expected it to be prequel bad, but I did expect it to be very, very bad. And it turns out that it's, like, not bad. Like, it's very not bad. This movie is shockingly good. That's sort of my buzzword for this movie. Like, like the way Star Trek 1 was dreadfully dull. This movie is shockingly good. The movie is shockingly good. And Alden Ehrenreich, as Han Solo, is shockingly good. I'm still not really sold on Ehrenreich as Han Solo. But oh. I think that might have more to do with the characterization in the writing of the movie. But that, combined with his performance, I'm not really sold on him as Han Solo. And actually, I think... Everything else about the movie, like almost literally everything else about the movie, was so shockingly good that I think uh, Aaron Reich and the Han Solo character are probably the least successful parts of it. Well, you have to realize this isn't the Han Solo from New Hope. You know, this is supposed to be a much younger Han Solo. He's supposed to be at the end. No. This is, what is this, like ten years before New Hope? We can get into that in the spoiler portion, but I do not think so. I mean, he's he's definitely, like, a little too glib for what we're used to from Han Solo. Not enough snark. But there's time. There's time for youthful glibness to grow into world-weary cynicism. I don't know. I got the impression that this was, like... We'll talk about it in the spoiler portion. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut that part out until we get to the spoiler section. Yes. Um, everything else about the movie, though, is absolutely shockingly not bad. I'm not sure that I'm prepared to call it shockingly good, but I'm very shocked that it's not bad. I'm I'm prepared to call it shockingly good because why? I, I said this to you on opening night when I said it was shockingly good, and you said. Well, where does it rank among the original trilogy and the two sequel movies and Rogue One? And I'm like, well, it's not as good as those. It's not. <laughs> but this is a series of movies. We've got eight episodes and the two spin-off movies. This is a kind of remarkable series of movies where we have ten movies and none of them rate anywhere between a seven and a two. I think a seven to seven and a half is good, considering I was expecting it to be a one based on the trailers. I was expecting it to be about a one or a two, and I'm not really big on number ratings, but I think I would give it like a five or a six. Like, it was very not bad. I think, like I said, Alden Ehrenreich is a little too glib and not enough world-weary cynicism and not enough snark. Compared to the original trilogy, Han Solo, but I mean, he has the sort of charisma you expect from Han Solo. He has the cockiness you expect from Han Solo. The chemistry between him and Chewie is spot on. Yeah, they they got the relationship between Han and Chewie very right. So good, and that's not just the writing; that has to be the acting too. Uh, part of it, yeah. He he does get the cockiness. It's much more youthful than you'd expect, but then he's. A very young person, or at least feels very young. Exactly. And, I mean, we're not doing spoilers yet, but the events of this movie sort of can be seen as sort of the beginning of his transformation from young, cocky, glib dude to older, world-weary cynic. In a way, I suppose. Um, 
I want to go back to my crateringly low expectations for this movie for just a second. Because I was expecting that this movie would be the reaction to a lot of the complaints about especially The Last Jedi and also Force Awakens and Rogue One. Basically, I thought this movie would be the movie for the MRA Star Wars fans. That it would be all about a dude who's an asshole and just has action hijinks as kind of a sop to the people who whine that Star Wars has girls in it now. You know, I, I, I thought it would be just a completely bog-standard, or worse, dude action movie. And there are elements that aren't that. I was so surprised. Uh, we'll get into those in the spoiler portion as well. That's sort of getting into the answer, my answer to the question that I wanted you to open the podcast with. Now we may get there yet. Because... This movie is widely regarded as a failure due to its current box office returns. I suppose. This movie has made thus far $193 million. Yeah. Domestic. 340 total worldwide. I don't know if they keep lists like this. I think this has to be the highest grossing failure in the history of movies, right? I have no idea about that. How much did John Carter cost? <laughs> but, I mean, it was probably like a $200 million something budget and with the corporate yeah, I'd probably accounting. Co yeah, with all the bullshit that happened during production, it wound up costing like half a billion to make. But that's not the fault of the movie. That's the fault of the people that made the movie. I think if you make a movie that makes $340 million in the first, like, two weeks, you should figure out a way to make that profitable. That's not the fault of the movie. But anyway, the way that I wanted to open this show was for you to ask me why did this movie fail, as it's claimed to have failed despite making $340 million worldwide, and my answer was going to be that you need to look at the reactions to each film that's come out in, since Star Wars has been resurrected with the sale to Disney. Force Awakens came out, starring Daisy Ridley and John Boyega. Huge success. The highest grossing movie ever in ever. Like, literally. The highest grossing film in the history of history. Then, Rogue One came out, starring Felicity Jones and Diego Luna. It didn't... It wasn't the highest grossing movie in the history of history, but it was a very successful movie. It made a lot of money. It did, it did It was well-regarded, well it was well-liked by the fans, and it made a lot of money. Then The Last Jedi came out, which was focused mainly on Luke's return to the franchise and his story. Very divisive film. A lot of people didn't like it. And now, the Solo movie, focused on Han Solo, widely regarded as a failure. I think it's clear... The Star Wars fan base will not come out and support a movie focusing on a white man. They just they just won't come out for it. I mean, that's not racism or sexism. That's just the way the audience is. You have to cater to the wants of the audience. And what this audience wants is clearly women and minorities in the main roles. That's the obvious evidence that we have based on the success of Force Awakens and Rogue One. And the... And the divisiveness and dislike aimed at The Last Jedi and the perceived failure of Solo. The obvious answer is that this fan base will not come out in support of a movie starring a white man. 
you know, you have to read the market. And you have to really f see what the market demands, you know? I think that Disney has to stop trying to force white men into these lead roles and just roll with what the people want to see. The people buying the tickets get to make these decisions. Yeah, it's when they try to put their agenda in the movies too much that this happens, isn't it? Exactly. You need to look at the box office evidence, see what was successful and what was not, see what was widely liked and what was very divisive and widely disliked, and you just need to go with what was successful. I mean, we live in a capitalist country. This is a business. They need to do the things that make the money. And what is clearly not making the money is Star Wars movies starring white guys. That's just the way it is. You can argue all you want. You can you make all your racial politics. That's just the way it is, plainly speaking. You know, I think you nailed it. We can end the podcast right here. But we haven't talked about the score yet. Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. Yes, fair. Anything else to say about re initial reaction to the movie, or should we move on to the spoiler section? Well... Something else that I think can go in the in the spoiler section, and possibly, maybe, possibly, another reason why this movie might have gotten kind of a muted reaction, is another question that I could have started the podcast with. Scott, can you think of a Star Wars character who was less in need of an origin story than Han Solo? I could probably think of ten. I could probably think of a hundred, but just right off the top of my head I could think of ten. Boba Fett, Boba Fett, Boba Fett, Boba Fett, Boba Fett. Yes. Okay. Boba Fett. Uh-huh. Bosk. Mm, I'd watch that one. General Dodonna. Mm-hmm. Many Bothans. That was Rogue One. Glenn, you ignorant <laughs> slut. <laughs> As it turns out, Darth Vader... Oh... Could have done without that one. Yeah, I guess. I Emperor guess. Palpatine. Could have done without that one. Going forward, Yoda, Obi-Wan Kenobi. People are clamoring for the Obi-Wan one, but I think that's just because Ewan McGregor is the only one from the prequels who was any good. And now he's old. See, now I'm running out of characters. Well, um, I think... I think I would probably say Boba Fett. And finish out the list with Boba Fett? Yes. Quite right. Although, we already got the Boba Fett origin story in Attack of the Clones. There, Yes. There was Boba Fett in Attack of the Clones. Apparently, Boba Fett's been in the Clone Wars TV show as well. So, I don't know what the hell that movie's gonna be. I kind of hope it doesn't actually happen, but whatever. Boba Fett was already overexposed as a character... In the novels, in, in the, the 90s? In the 90s, just in fandom, before there were even movies. Yeah, that's that's another thing where I, I don't get the focus on Boba Fett at all. He had a cool mask, and then he did nothing and fell in a hole. And that's the total of Boba Fett in canon. <laughs> I do want to comment on... You said that you didn't buy Olden Ehrenreich as Han Solo. Right. My viewing of... This movie is heavily shaped by my experience with the Star Trek reboot. Where seven iconic actors in iconic roles had to be replaced with new actors. Okay. And so, I sort of have experience in this area as a fan of a franchise. And so I have like a criteria by which to judge. And I think based on 
the Star Trek reboots, there's sort of two ways you can go as an actor when you're replacing an iconic actor in an iconic role. There's sort of two ways you can go. Either you can just try to do an impression of that actor. Like, you can act as that actor acting as the character. Or you can, like, sort of figure out what are the major points of that character. What are the important traits that the other actor played in the character? What are the important traits of the character? And then incorporate that into your performance and play those traits yourself. Not necessarily in the same way as the other actor did, but sort of playing the same characteristics in your own way. Sort of making the character your own, but still sort of playing it in a very similar way to the other actor because you're focusing on the same important character traits. I think that last version is basically what Zachary Quinto and Chris Pine did. Is they sort of focused in different ways. Zachary Quinto sort of focused a lot on how Leonard Nimoy played Spock and what were the important aspects of Leonard Nimoy's portrayal of Spock and then incorporated his own way of playing those aspects of the character into his performance. Chris Pine didn't really seem to be emulating Shatner at all in most of the performance. He was instead sort of focusing on the sort of general public impression of Kirk and taking his character notes from that and shaping his performance to portray that character as it's known in public. And also did a good job, but in a way that's much more different from the William Shatner performance than Zachary Quinto is from the Leonard Nimoy performance. On the other hand, Carl Urban is pretty clearly doing a DeForest Kelly impression. Yeah, he was just doing an impression, and doing it very well, but that's yeah. the acting choice that he made. I'm not saying it's a bad performance, but he is he is acting as DeForest Kelly, acting as Leonard McCoy. Yeah. In this movie, Alden Ehrenreich is clearly doing the Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto method, but he doesn't have... Harrison Ford on set with him the way that Zachary Quinto had Leonard Nimoy available because Leonard Nimoy was part of that movie and Leonard Nimoy was very supportive of Zachary Quinto and supportive of that movie. Harrison Ford, by all accounts, doesn't really give much of a shit about Han Solo. He's not going to show up on set for a movie he's not even in to like support the new guy playing the character. He doesn't have the sort of connection and personal relationship to the Han Solo character the way Leonard Nimoy did to the Spock character. So Alden Ehrenreich clearly didn't have that resource. But he's sort of taking, you know, the same character points, you know, the cockiness, the charisma, the chemistry with Chewie, the the byplay and banter he does. He's taking character traits from Han Solo and sort of trying to make them his own and play them in his own way. And like I said, he comes off as a little too glib and not enough cynic, but Again, he's a younger version of the character. There's time for that to develop. I think he does a very good job. I think the character he portrays, while not necessarily an identical character portrayal to what Harrison Ford did, is still recognizable as Han Solo. My reaction to that, I think, moves into spoiler territory. So let's cap off the well, non-spoiler portion. Before we go into spoilers, we have to talk about the other one. Donald Glover... I don't know what he's doing. Donald Glover is the example that when you choose one of these methods and do it so fucking perfectly, it looks like the other one too. He is clearly making this character his own, and he also sounds just like Billy D. Williams. 
Donald Glover sounded like he was doing a Billy D. Williams impression for about his first two lines in his first scene in this movie. Past that, I didn't pick up on the specific cadence of a Billy D, but he totally took that character and made it his own. He is so, so, so charismatic. And that's really the important part about Lando. Yes, yes. Very good point, yes. He just charms everyone on the screen. His charm oozes out of the screen. You know, like like that scene in Ghostbusters. I think possibly Donald Glover gives the best performance in this movie. But Lando's not in it that much. The best character in this movie is Chewbacca. Uh, they got they really got Chewie right. Oh, it's so good. It's a, it's kind of amazing how right they got Chewie. I mean, he he does look a little bit different than Peter Mayhew. Like Peter May- Peter Mayhew is very tall and skinny. Like his limbs were very skinny, and the new guy, this Junus. This yeah, was that the same guy who was in the the sequel movies? Yeah, yeah. He's a little bit thicker. His limbs are thicker. He's more built. And I don't think he's quite as tall as Peter Mayhew, but God, he plays the character so well. Yeah, the one thing I can say about Chewbacca in this movie is, Daddy Thick. <laughs> but Chewbacca is is probably the best character in this movie. He is very, very good. In fact, if I had to rank the characters in this movie, I'd go Chewbacca 1, Lando 2, and 3. I do like the performance. And, 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 and I think he's an interesting character. And I think he develops in ways in this movie, and it hints at future developments. It's very interesting. Assuming they actually make any of the sequels they apparently have planned. After oh, the, God. After the devastating failure of $340 million gross. After the devastating failure of this movie, despite the sequel bait crammed into it. But we'll get to that later, too. Number four would be Woody Harrelson, even though he appears to be half asleep throughout most of the role. He's still one of the best things in the movie. Also rather charismatic. And number five, I would say, is Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany was very good. The droid, I just fell in love with immediately. I have a dissenting opinion on the droid. We'll talk about that in the spoiler portion, too, then. We will. Is there anything else non-spoilery we can tell people to give them an idea of what to expect, whether or not to go see this thing? Yeah, let's just cap off the non-spoiler portion by saying, again, it's surprisingly not bad. If you're on the fence about it because of how it looked in the trailers, give it a shot. The trailers were pretty bad. Like, literally the only clever part about any of the trailers, I thought, was Han saying, I have a really good feeling about this. I hated that in the trailer, but it works better in the movie. Almost everything in the trailer works better in the movie. Yeah, fair. So, that being said, if you haven't seen it and you think you're going to want to, uh, please pause your podcast player, maybe listen to another podcast, and get back to us when you do. Spoiler section begins. Thank you very much for coming back with us after seeing the movie. (laughs) So, I think it's interesting that you talk about the most recent Star Trek movies in relation to the Han Solo character, because... They basically did the same thing to Han that they did to Kirk in those movies and that they made him Luke Skywalker. I don't know that I agree with either one of those. Suddenly he's this poor Moppet who dreams of flying among the stars and, and he has to rise from his humble beginnings. It's all very typical and trite. 
Well, I mean, that was always sort of the hand backstory. I mean, even Han, ba- Han didn't have a backstory. I mean, Han's and, and, backstory was that he was a scoundrel. That's it. And I mean, that's the one thing. Whatever you want to say about Alden Ehrenreich's performance, this dude is not a scoundrel. I think that's very interesting. Do you want to get into that, or do you want to stick with this? They turned him into Luke Skywalker bullshit. Oh, do either one. What do you think? Okay, on your thing. Even back in the '90s, when they were doing novels in like fan consciousness about Han's background, that was always his background. He grew up on Corellia. And wanted to explore the stars. Oh yeah, there was the whole bit where he was a slave boy, right? I think... I don't remember the specifics of it. I never got that into the non-canon backstory stuff. But I think Street Urchin was definitely always part of his background. Okay. So, that part I can't really begrudge them. They, They put a little new specifics on the general framework of what everyone has thought of as his background for the last 20 or 30 years. So, I can't knock him for that. What was the other thing you brought up? Scoundrels. This movie recontextualizes Han Solo in a rather brilliant way. Really? Based on the original trilogy and the, you know, sort of fandom theorizing surrounding the original trilogy. The idea was always that Han Solo was this uncaring, out-for-himself, amoral scoundrel who sort of despite himself, gets sucked into this rebellion because he befriends this kid, Luke Skywalker. And he gets like, it's like unnecessary roughness when Scott Bakula says, why the hell am I on a road trip with Jiminy Cricket right before he turns around and goes back to the college? Han Solo sort of, you know, he's got his money to pay off his debts, he's going to take off before the rebellion gets blown up so that he can survive, and he just has like one last encounter with fucking Jiminy Cricket Skywalker. And winds up coming back and joining the Rebellion and saving his friend's life. Who he doesn't really want to acknowledge as a friend, because then he would have to acknowledge that he has friends and cares about friends. He, he finds out that it only takes four or five moments in life to make you a hero. But this movie presents a very different Han Solo that is not at all contradictory to that. Because Kira says it, he's the good guy. This movie presents Han Solo, who is a good guy. He's a guy who wants to be an uncaring, amoral scoundrel. He wants to be out for himself and not care about any of this other bullshit. He wants to do that, but he just can't help himself. He he help, he saves Chewie from the slave pit. He helps Enfant's Nest rather than give the coaxium to Crimson Dawn or the Empire or whatever convoluted thing that they had going. He, he sticks by Beckett when Beckett is going to go get killed by Crimson Dawn. Han could just take off, but he goes with him to try to back him up and try to help him. He is the good guy who keeps doing good guy stuff despite himself, despite his own ideation of himself as a scoundrel. He wants to be a scoundrel. He wants to be uncaring about all this shit, but he keeps getting sucked in. He keeps doing the right thing despite himself. See, this isn't an anomaly, what he does with Luke in New Hope. This is a pattern that apparently has been going on his whole life. See, that's his character at the end of New Hope, and that's his character in Empire, and by Return of the Jedi, he's just like barely putting up a pretense of being a scoundrel while helping everyone. And I always thought that that was character growth, and not just the way he had always been forever. Well, it is character growth, and he's finally accepted it. Like, this is, however early this is in the timeline, 
And the one person that actually knows him is calling him the good guy. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not the good guy. But he keeps helping people. He faces up to Crimson Dawn with Beckett. He saves Lando and L3 rather than just get on the ship and take off and leave them. He keeps doing these things that are good guy things, even though he doesn't want to be the good guy. He wants to be the uncaring scoundrel. He wants to be the smuggler. He wants to be the criminal, because he sees that as freedom. After his youth on Corellia being trapped into this whatever it was that Proxima was doing, he sees lack of attachments as freedom. He doesn't want to be attached to people he thinks of as friends. He doesn't want to be attached to causes that he thinks is right. He sees that lack of attachment as freedom. And so this characterization makes his winding up with the Rebellion in the original trilogy, it's not a sharp change in his character the way we may have thought it was, but instead it's the culmination of a pattern he's been following his whole life. Where now in the, in the original trilogy is when he finally accepts that he's not the amoral space jockey he's seen himself as. And accepts that he does like being the good guy. I think that's a brilliant recharacterization of the character. And it doesn't contradict anything in the original trilogy, but it, it brings a whole new context to his behavior in the original trilogy. I, th I thought it was great. Do you think that his heightened cynicism in New Hope is kind of a deep depression after Akira abandons him? Well, I think that's definitely a contributing part of it. The, the guy he sees as a mentor betrayed him, and he had to kill his mentor. The woman that he's in love with tricks him into leaving so that she can abandon him and take off with the crime syndicate. We don't know what happens later in that story. Like I said, there's obvious sequel bait, and we don't know if those are going to be made now, but we don't know what happens later in the story of Han and Kira, but clearly there's a betrayal there where he's, you know, three years later, he's still trying to figure out a way to get back to Corellia to go find Kira, but and Kira is, like, sort of... We don't know what's going on with Kira. We can get into that later, but from Han's perspective, she abandons him. So I think those are definitely contributing factors to turning this youthful, cocky, glib guy into a world-weary cynic that we see in A New Hope. I mean, I suppose. It's also something that forges a very quick relationship with Chewie, right? Because he's the only one who doesn't abandon him. <laughs> Chewie is the character in this movie who is always trying to do the right thing. Well, I suppose... Well, not necessarily the right thing. I mean, apparently before we meet him, he was eating people. Yeah, but he was a captive and purposefully being starved. And then, and then, like, as soon as he gets released, he, you know, immediately joins several criminal enterprises to try to steal the most valuable substance in the galaxy. With his friend Han. <laughs> He's sticking by the guy who helped him escape. <laughs> I kind of love... The first time we saw the movie... Where they say, throw him to the beast. And by the way, the, the Alden Ehrenreich's delivery of that line... Wait, wait, there's a beast? Brilliant, fucking brilliant. Great delivery there. Perfect comedic timing. They throw him into this pit, and there's a monster coming out, and I'm ready to roll my eyes so hard that I go blind. At like, oh great, here we go with another Rancor knockoff. And then it turns out the Rancor is chewy. Oh, it's so good. I had thought several times that this movie, because it's a prequel as well, 
it has a natural gravitation toward more of the nostalgia hits coming from New Hope. Although, of course, later on in the movie, Woody Harrelson has uh, Lando's costume from Jedi. Well, that's obviously, like, the uniform of some, like, particular guard contingent or something. Because Lando wasn't the only one at Jabba's Palace dressed like that. Sure. And so, because these movies are in the pre-New Hope time frame, and so gravitate more toward that for a lot of the nostalgia hits, I really wasn't expecting the Rancor at all. But I can see how that would have been... Well, I wasn't expecting it to be the Rancor, but I was... You know, a Rancor. You know, they have a Rancor fight in Attack of the Clones... They have a Rancor fight in Star Trek 2009. <laughs> you know, they do these things, which is, you know... It's like Lethal Weapon movies. You always have to have Riggs climbing on a moving vehicle. You always have to have the funny Miranda rights. You always have to have Joe Pesci talking about where they fuck you. You know, there's these beats that you hit, and it seems like Star Wars movies have decided, well, a, a fight with a giant monstrous creature, that's one of the beats we hit in the Star Wars movie, except this time, no, this time they subverted it because of the monstrous beast he has to fight is Chewbacca. Well, in terms of Alden Ehrenreich's performance, I do think he pulled off the little bit of Wookiee he was able to speak. Uh, better than some actors might have. <laughs> there's a lot of good in that performance, man. I suppose. You're highlighting more of it than I saw, you know, when we saw the movie. <laughs> to be fair. One of the problems with doing a prequel, and, like, trying to hit those nostalgia hits like you talked about, is you tend to just, like, blow your load immediately. Like, is there anything Han Solo had in A New Hope that doesn't show up in this movie? Like, however many Han Solo movies they wanted to make, there's nothing left for him to acquire that he eventually has in New Hope. The blaster he has in the original trilogy he gets in this movie, Chewbacca's bandolier he gets in this movie, the stupid dice that no one even noticed in the original trilogy but have suddenly become the most important thing in the universe in the last few movies, those are in this movie. The Millennium Falcon he gets in this movie. His belt that he wears throughout the original trilogy he gets in this movie. Everything that, like, is going to be a nostalgia hit, like, oh, I remember that from the original trilogy, every single one of those shows up in this movie. Oh, everything but the vest, right? It's like, if you're going to do small little nostalgia hits like that, just like, you know, a prop that you recognize from the later in the timeline, I mean, that's fine, that can be a nice little nostalgia hit, but you don't do, like, Every single one of them. Yeah, they, they do get basically everything other than, I think, the vest and Chewie's crossbow. Like, this movie covers what? Like, a week? A few days? Well, and, and once he, they jump forward a few years, but yeah. Well, okay, the few, the few years jump. But, I mean, other than that, the whole thing where he meets Woody Harrelson and goes on a train heist and then go to see Dryden Voss and then go on the Kessel Run and then meet Dryden Voss again and then Dryden Voss dies and Kira flies away, that whole thing is like a few days, maybe a week. I suppose. And every single prop that he has in the original trilogy he managed to acquire within this week. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely relying on those nostalgia hits a lot. Which any Star Wars movie is going to do now. I mean, that's, that's part of how you construct a Star Wars movie now. You shouldn't do all of them at once, though. And, and the interest can come in in terms of how you work with them, how much you rely on them. Like, The Last Jedi had a lot of nostalgia hits, but also had a really meaty story that it relied on. 
you know, Rogue One had a lot of meaty characterization and a lot of story that it relied on and a bunch of the nostalgia hits. You know, it had all the characterization and it had Saw Gerrera and, and, and all that background and had Mads Mikkelsen and all that stuff. And it also had CGI Peter Cushing. But yeah, there's a lot of subtlety that can go into how you use them and how much you rely on them. And this movie definitely relied on a lot of them. You know, it dwelt on the dice a lot. It dwelt a little bit on Han getting his blaster. Although, well, it didn't really dwell on Han getting the blaster, just Woody Harrelson handed him a blaster. Yeah, and then it was featured very heavily whenever he did the Harrison Ford pose with it. Oh, he did the Harrison Ford pose so good. He did get the pose right, yes. He looks awful on the poster. By the way, the poster for this movie is awful. Well... But when he does the pose in the movie on Kessel, it is so good. They definitely made some decisions as far as the marketing and artistic presentation of the movie. On the poster, on the soundtrack album, on the the different character posters that they did. You know, to have them kind of washed out in different colors. Uh, the orange color scheme for the uh, main poster is definitely a decision, and it's not a typical decision, so I give him some credit for that. Yeah, but none of the characters look good on that poster. I suppose. One of the things that I thought was the most original about this movie, and the most surprising plot development for me, was the droid liberation. I just thought that was so amazing. It completely came out of left field for me, because, as I said, I expected this to be just a bog-standard action romp, and... When it does the action romp stuff, it's pretty good. The heist scenes are pretty good because heist scenes are fun. The chase scenes are pretty good because chase scenes are fun. But that's pretty standard stuff. I did not expect droid liberation and, you know, radical droid politics to enter the movie at all. But I was just so, so happy seeing it. I think there's a good idea there. I don't think it was executed very well. L3 is a social justice warrior, as envisioned by people who use the term social justice warrior. And everyone else treats her as such. There are definitely elements of that. I think the movie kind of gets on her side more than some of the characters do. Nobody takes her seriously, and her own characterization is inconsistent. Because when they're in the droid fight at the bar, she's, like, very strident and gung-ho about it. And even, like, in other conversations where they're just like, you know, I'm gonna go back and hit the head, do you need anything? And rather than saying, like, you know, a coffee, she says, equal rights? And yet, when they go on the raid, and she sees, like, a hundred droids working all the consoles, she doesn't say anything. She pulls the restraining bolt off one and very sarcastically goes, You're free! Go free your brothers! Get out of my fucking way! I'm trying to do a heist. Yeah, she winds up leading a droid insurrection. <laughs> yeah, but she does that sort of spontaneously. She doesn't walk in there and go, Look at all these droids that are enslaved! I'm going to free them! She, she takes the bolt off one of them as a way to further the heist, and she rather sarcastically and dismissively goes, Eh, you're free! Go free your friends! Get out of my way! I'm trying to do a heist. Well... She's intent on... And then ten minutes later, she says, I've found my calling. Well, 
What were you doing in the bar scene if you've just found Droid Liberation as you're calling here? I have to think this is some sort of inconsistency introduced by all the rewrites and reshoots. I think maybe that's the first actual droid insurrection she's led. And I think in the beginning of that heist sequence, I think she's focusing more on what she has to do to help the heist go off so they don't all get killed. And then once that starts working and they're actually in the midst of it, she can, you know, liberate some droids and then celebrate the fact that droids are being liberated. I just think her characterization is so bad, I can't take the character seriously. Because it's... It's like Sean Hannity wrote a, you know, social justice crusader. Sean Hannity wouldn't write one who succeeds. She gets killed. Yeah, after... after she gets killed, and then her brain is downloaded into the ship. She's not exactly liberated. Well, she's already more liberated than other droids, because Lando treats her like an equal. And then this brings up all sorts of other questions. Like, is this... Is this, like, a new fact about the Star Wars universe we have to incorporate into, like, the rest of the films? Are 3PO and R2 slaves? There has been a lot of discussion about that for literally decades, I think. I mean, R2 runs away from Luke to try to fulfill orders he was given by Leia. Does that just mean he's loyal to his old master, not his new master? They literally call him Master Luke! Yeah, yeah, there is a really uncomfortable undertone to all that. I mean, if droids are sentience equal to humans, that's horrible. That makes every single character that we love a slave owner. A lot of them, yeah. I'm not sure that's something we really want to introduce into the Star Wars universe. I have Luke s- Skywalker, slave owner. Leia, slave owner. Poe Dameron, slave owner. I have seen selections from the comics where Poe Dameron is actually a lot more woke about that. You know, scenes where he's, like, talking to 3PO about you've been present for so much of history, what was it like, and and treating 3PO as more of a person than anyone ever really has. But yeah, I think that's an undercurrent that's always been there. It, it It was just never... It was subtext that was never made text. Droids have always had personalities. They've always been presented as sentient. I mean, they're not toasters. At least R2 and 3PO and some of the droids have always been presented as sentient. You could maybe make a case that something like the Gonk droid might not have been, but then you get to the scene in Solo where the Gonk droid is part of the droid insurrection. (laughs) That whole sequence was just so incredibly fun for me that, like... Oh, it's definitely a lot of fun. I didn't really consider any of the inconsistencies because it's just so refreshing to see, especially in a movie like this. I mean, it's definitely a lot of fun, and it's a cool scene. It just... L3 is characterized so inconsistently and characterized so badly. Like, apart from the inconsistency between being very strident and unapologetic in one scene and then in the next scene, not even bringing it up until it sort of happens accidentally... Apart from that inconsistency, she's depicted so badly. Like oh. I said, it's a social justice warrior as written by like some egg on Twitter that complains about the SJWs all the time. That's her character. Well, of course, the eggs on Twitter hate Solo because it injected all this SJW agenda, but you know. What agenda? She's roundly mocked for it. Although, although- Lan rolls his eyes at her, everyone else is exasperated with her. 
Although, Nobody takes her seriously. Although it does kind of recontextualize all the problems they had with the Falcon in Empire and any of the other movies. It kind of recontextualizes all of that as body horror. <laughs> you know, this, this droid who was full of personality and vivacious and independent and radical is this device that everyone is controlling for the rest of the movies. So... It's kind of a cheeky way at pointing at the um, impudence. That's not a good word. It's it's kind of a cheeky way of pointing at the... Uppityness? That's not a good word for it either. <laughs> the personality of the Falcon in some, in some of the other movies, but also kind of turns it dark in kind of the same way that I think you're saying about the droid politics. What relating you, to the other movies. What do you make of the fact that the first female characterized droid is a social justice warrior as conceived of by people who use the term social justice warrior? You know, that's not the most comfortable thing about her character. <laughs> to be fair. I guess what we need next is, like, droid Finn. Where, like, one of the Imperial droids is awakened and adopts radical droid liberation theology. Yeah, but they would immediately try to convince 3PO and R2 and BB-8 to, like, stop being so loyal to their owners. Okay. I, I mean, I, I think that, I think, well, the droid politics wasn't an undercurrent of The Last Jedi, but part of an undercurrent of The Last Jedi is that the good guys, you know maybe aren't pure, virtuous, pure-as-the-driven-snow people in themselves. I just think there's no good way to reconcile this. If you want to make the argument that droids are sentient creatures equal to other sentient creatures and deserve all the rights of a sentient creature, there is literally no way to reconcile that with how any droid is treated in any other movie. Like in Phantom Menace, when like a whole herd of them are sent out onto the hull of the ship, the external hull of the ship in the middle of a space battle to try to effect repairs. Yeah. I mean, what did Guinan say about data and measure of a man? <laughs> We've always had disposable people who do the jobs that are too dangerous for the rest of us. Yeah. If those are sentient beings and not appliances, how evil are all of those people? The, the, the biological people who sent the droids out there. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, casual racism against the droids. I mean, another link to A New Hope that they called out in this movie was, you know, the bar doesn't even serve our kind. What would you serve a droid? Flavored batteries? I don't know. Pleasurable data streams? I can't really conceive very well of the pleasures that would be enjoyed by a mind so different in its structure and conception than my own. Are battle droids also sentient? Like, were the Jedis just, like, slaughtering thousands of sentient droids at a time throughout the Clone Wars? Would that be that much of a stretch for as, like, ossified and terrible as the Jedis were portrayed? Not, not necessarily, but those battles were never portrayed as, like, fighting actual beings. The battle droids, like equivalents in a lot of action movies, are just, like, 
things that we can put into action scenes that aren't people so we don't have to confront the fact that our heroes are mowing down crowds of people in action movies. Well, now according to L3, those are crowds of people. Well, yeah, now that puts that in the same category as the action movies where our heroes really do just mow down entire crowds of people, and we're fine with that because they're our heroes. You know, maybe that's something that could do with some deconstruction. This isn't the movie that's doing it. No, not in the least. You know, a Star Wars movie isn't going to do that. But it opened the door a tiny little bit, and I appreciate that. It's not resolving the issue, it's just kind of gesturing at it. Mm. But I get the impression that, that you think it's, like, creating it wholesale. Partly. And also, it's just so badly done. Because, I mean, I keep referring back to that, but, like, L3 is not portrayed in any way as, like, a person who cares about obtaining justice for an oppressed group. She's portrayed as like the Fox News stereotype of an SJW. I don't know. The 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 droid insurrection scene that led into the slave insurrection scene and the Wookiee insurrection and, and all of that during the uh, heist scene. All of that just made me so happy. <laughs> that some some of the deficiencies of the writing I can kind of overlook that a little bit. I mean, yeah, it probably is because of a lot of the production difficulties, but considering all the production difficulties, they actually came through with a surprisingly decent movie, as we've observed. Mm. The characterization of L3 is possibly my least favorite part of it. Wow. Okay. Much like Canto Bright... I really don't have a high tolerance for when movies try to address a serious social issue and just do it so very badly. Well, as discussed, I'm a lot more forgiving toward this stuff. I give a lot of bonus points for even gesturing at the issue in a movie like this. While we're on parts of the movie that I didn't like... What did you think of the opening text? I wanted to ask you about that. Because these Star Wars anthology movies have a problem when they have to decide how to begin the movie. I thought Rogue One got it right. Dispense with all that and just jump into a movie. Yeah, Rogue One jumped right into it. Did very well with that. Solo felt like it was trying to kind of thread a needle it didn't really need to thread. Where they didn't want to do the full bold yellow text scroll that's reserved just for the episodes, but it also wanted to have a bunch of introductory text, which I'm not sure that it really needed. Well, it probably did need that introduction to like let you know what the fuck is going on, but I wish they had figured out a way of restructuring the beginning of the story so they didn't need it. Because mm. I didn't like that. I mean, that was basically opening crawl text. That was an opening crawl. Yeah, absolutely. They, they just put it in a different font. Yes. I didn't like that. It, it did feel a little cheap, and it felt like papering over difficulties in introducing the movie in a way that the introductory text in the episodes doesn't. And it started off the movie by contextualizing Han Solo again as someone yearning to fly among the stars. Which, right from that text card, I found a little obnoxious. 
Eh, I just figure that's how you introduce the hero of your movie. You have to introduce your character and where he is and where he wants to be. And that's the conflict. How does he get from where he is to where he wants to be? That's like what characters do in movies. So you have to introduce where he is and where he wants to be. I just wish they could have done it without, like, trying to do a not-text-crawl text-crawl. Yeah, I think... I think the instinct of wanting to introduce Han as an action character by introducing the movie with an action scene was good. I'm not completely sure they really needed to contextualize it that much. Because the opening sequence, the opening act of the movie, does very well in itself establishing Han as someone who's in a bad situation, who's caught by the Corellian street gangs, and needs to get out. Yeah, I feel like they could have introduced that in dialogue somewhere rather than doing it in a text. Right. While we're talking about stuff that I didn't like... <laughs> sure. That speeder chase... When he's escaping from Proxima and going to the spaceport. I was bothered by how that was basically just a car chase. When the physics should not have been anything like a car chase. You mean he should have been able to go over the water and stuff? Not even that, but that vehicle does not have friction with the ground. It shouldn't skid around corners the way a car on tires does. It, it shouldn't drift side to side the way a car on tires does. True. I mean, I'm sure there are much more innovative things you can do with flying cars and directionality and momentum. I mean, it wouldn't swing around corners, it would just miss corners because there's no friction. Yeah, you you need some sort of, like... You, you, you need reverse thrusters. Yeah, you need some sort of thruster or impulser or impeller or something to, like, kill your momentum and then start your momentum in a different direction. Or you could do both of those things at once, but you shouldn't, like, skid to a stop as if you were on rubber tires on an asphalt road. Not when you're floating three feet above the ground. I just... I think they weren't very imaginative with that scene. If they had imagined what would this high-speed, tight, hairpin-turn chase be like in a vehicle that does not have friction with the ground, I thought it could have been a much more interestingly choreographed scene rather than just a car chase with some CGI floaty vehicles. True. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, those chases, I thought, again, were fine just because car chases are easy to do well in movies. Yeah. Speaking of things I expected to not like about the movie. Yeah. In the vein where we talked about how the trailer made it look terrible, and the previews made it look terrible, the title sounded terrible. It's a movie about Han Solo, and we called it Solo. Points for creativity? And like you said, you know, do you have an incredibly mundane and banal reason why you have your name? But... In the context of the whole movie, that becomes such a... Sort of a clever thing. Really? You don't think so? Because that really... He gets the name Solo because Kira has just been pulled away from him. And he's on his own now. And so that name Solo is the reminder that he's alone. He left Kira behind. He doesn't have a family. He's a lone street urchin. And the only person he cared about didn't make it out with him, so now he's alone. 
He has no people. He has nobody he cares about. He has nobody that cares about him. He's alone. He's solo. And what happens in the movie is he gains a mentor, and he finds his girlfriend again, and the mentor turns on him, and he has to kill the mentor, and the girlfriend abandons him, and he's alone again, except for Chewie. Yeah, except for Chewie. But the whole story of the movie is about him starting out alone and trying to connect with these people and winding up mostly alone. I thought, I thought, I thought it was very... It was a much more interesting and nuanced title after putting it in the context of the story and what happens to him in the movie and what that name means in storyline. It's not just his name, because that was his dad's name and his dad's name and his dad's name. That name was given to him because he has no family and the only person he cared about was torn away from him. There's much more thought and nuance going into that than the impression I had before was it's a movie about Han Solo and it's called Solo. There's a lot more that goes into it than that once you see the movie and see the story and see what happens. It's like when they were advertising the iRobot movie and the tagline was one man saw it coming and then you see the movie and you realize the one man they're talking about is not Will Smith. That alone makes that tagline so much more interesting. I think this title is so much more interesting now that I put it in the context of what the name means in the movie and what happens to Han in the movie. I think I think there's a lot more interesting stuff going on with that title than the impression that I had before. I think some of the suggestions that this movie makes are a little more interesting than some of the things that it did. Such as the whole phase of Han's life where he's an Imperial grunt. Well, that was always part of his backstory, that he was in the Imperial Academy and got kicked out, or AWOLed, or something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure the three years in the infantry was part of that. Well, maybe not that long, but... I mean, this did stick in a lot of ways to like what has been sort of assumed within fandom to be his backstory. I mean, it has very different details in some ways, and I don't think fandom gave him a girlfriend, because, you know, Leia. Well. But... Yeah, well, yeah, well, before you met her, he was uh, solo. Well, that gives you a whole new recontextualization of his relationship with Leia, that he was in love with Kira, and he was forced to abandon her, and then he managed to reconnect with her, but then she abandoned him for the crime syndicate. And so that puts a whole new context on his relationship with Leia in Empire and Jedi. And also the fan theory that when he says in Force Awakens, are you Han Solo? And he says, I used to be. Now we have context of why he would get rid of the name Solo. Because he's not alone anymore. He's got Chewie, he's got Leia, he's got, he's got Luke, he's got a son. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the crime syndicate for a minute. It's kind of a different crime syndicate than we've seen before in Star Wars, which does have kind of a lot of crime syndicates. I think we probably mentioned in, in, in the non-spoiler portion that Paul Bettany was just so good as like, the slimy crime boss. Yeah, Paul Bettany's character was a lot of fun. He was sort of hamming it up and having a lot of fun. Yeah. And the sort of high-class environment that they present... Yeah, it's not like it's not like the dregs of the crime world like Jabba's. Yeah, it's it's a little it's a little reminiscent of Canto Bite actually, in that it's just so consciously high class while also being incredibly scummy. Morally scummy and not like 
in terms of cleanliness. Well, Canto Bite was like a legitimate business. I mean, Canto Bite I don't think is any different than like the MGM Grand. You know? But this... Yeah, yeah, and the gambling business has never been known to be... Okay, well... Yeah, but I mean... I, okay, I guess I could see where they would be on the same spectrum. You're right. I have to say, though, when I was going through... This isn't really score, so I'll mention it here. When I was when I was listening to the CD and I got to the track, that's the song they play when they first arrive at the Crimson Dawn ship. Just the fact that it's source music from the crime hovel, I I almost had an anxiety attack from Jedi Rocks. <laughs> well, it was a very different genre from Jedi Rocks. It was it was the more like smooth jazz cantina band. <laughs> That terror is burned into my consciousness. Yeah, okay, okay. Speaking of things I didn't like in the movie... Oh, alright. Why does everybody have energy blade weapons now? Like, in the original trilogy, we only ever saw three of them. Anakin's lightsaber that Luke used in Star Wars and Empire, Vader's lightsaber, and I guess... Obi-Wan's. Did Obi-Wan have a different lightsaber? Yeah, there, there, there was Obi-Wan's, and then Luke made another, but still. And then Luke's lightsaber and Jedi. So that's four. We saw four of them in three movies, used by three characters. We saw four energy blade weapons. Yeah. All of them lightsabers, all of them made by Jedi, all of them used by Jedi. Yeah. In these new movies, since Force Awakens, Force Awakens, Stormtroopers had energy blade weapons. I don't remember if anyone had them in Rogue One, but in The Last Jedi... The Stormtrooper Executioners have Energy Blade weapons. Snoke's Guards have Energy Blade weapons. Dryden Voss has Energy Blade weapons. Infant's Nest has Energy Blade weapons. Dryden Voss has an Energy Blade knife that's like an actual knife with an actual knife blade. It just has the Energy Blade over top of the actual blade. Well, Dryden Voss has Energy weapons because he's a Sith Apprentice. If we're going to talk about the sequel bait... Oh... Do you want to talk about the sequel bait? Of all of the prequel characters to show up in one of these new movies, I did not expect it to be the dead one. Yeah. Is this the first time that the prequels have been explicitly acknowledged by one of the other movies? Uh, Luke mentioned Darth Sidious. Did he? Yeah, when he was talking about how the Jedi Order let Darth Sidious come to power. Oh, yeah, 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 right. I I knew they talked about how, like, the Jedi Order was, like, blind and ossified and let the Emperor take power. I didn't realize they specifically mentioned Darth Sidious. Right. But, yeah, I'd be just as soon if nobody mentioned the prequel trilogy anymore. I could just ignore it and stick with the backstory told by Obi-Wan in New Hope. Well, we don't really have that luxury anymore. I mean, Darth Maul is someone else that I think they've done a lot with in the TV shows, but I don't watch those and don't particularly care about them. Well, this is a very excellent example, I think, of like one of the complaints people had about Last Jedi. When Snoke died and everyone was like, you know, we never found out his background. Is he, like, Darth Plagiarism? Or Darth Bane? Or Darth... Rigel Seven, or they had like a list of like seventy different Sith lords from video games and novels and backstory and bullshit. That maybe this Sith lord from this ancillary property is actually Snoke. 
and everyone was like complaining that they didn't do one of those things, ignoring the fact that nobody that goes to see this movie has fucking heard of any of those people. Like, like what percentage of the audience going to the movie? Like, The Force Awakens made a billion dollars. What percentage of people going to that movie had ever heard of these various video game backstory characters? You want to make a reference, you bring somebody from one of the fucking movies. That's what people know. That's what people see. Well... And so bringing back a dude that as far as anyone who's seen the movies knows is dead... It's nothing but a confusing what the fuck is going on here moment. Well, yeah, there are different ways of doing that. I think they did fine with Saw Gerrera, who was a character in the Clone Wars... Was he? See, I didn't even realize that. That was okay. Yeah, because you didn't need to. I didn't need to know that. I could just appreciate Saul Guerrero for the wonderful Jewish luchador that he is. As opposed to having Darth Maul show up when the last time you saw him, he was cut in half and shoved down in a bottomless pit. That's the thing. He didn't just get his legs cut off. He got his whole body cut off. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they show that he has, like, robot legs, but, like, does he also have, like, a robot small intestine? And how exactly did he survive long enough to get that robot small intestine? Did he have robot legs? I didn't even notice. I know I, I I was looking for him the second time, and it's it's hard to see because of the way the hologram is. But yeah, it looks sort of like robot legs. But like, he got cut right through the fucking torso. You don't survive that. Well, even aside from the exact plot mechanics, which you can do whatever you want in a fantasy movie. Even aside from all that, I don't understand how bringing Darth Maul back is not dumb. If Darth Maul was brought back for, what, one of the, like, the Clone Wars cartoon, you said? I think so, yeah. Dude was cut in half, and they brought him back for the cartoon. How long, how long was he in that cartoon? I have no idea. I believe quite a bit. Does that officially make him the most overrated character in the history of the franchise? Has he now surpassed Boba Fett? There's no way he's going to surpass Boba Fett. He was a one-off dude who was in one movie and got killed. The end. He was in one movie in like two sword fights and then he got killed. The end. Well, to be fair, even Boba Fett had a cool mask. Darth Maul didn't even have that. So, maybe there's more to your point than I thought on first blush. Also, the continued existence of Darth Maul completely violates the law of the conservation of Sith. Well... Always two there are! Yeah, and who told us that? Yoda! Yeah! And who was continually shown to be full of shit through the prequels? <laughs> so you're saying that Yoda was wrong about the fundamental law of the conservation of Sith? I think maybe expecting the Sith to honor a code, even if it's their own code, is a little naive. He's got he's got a brand new red-bladed, double-ended lightsaber. Yeah, he, he whipped that up at some point. And we don't mean to impugn the TV show or whatever. If anyone listening is a fan of the Clone Wars, bless you and keep you. It's just I haven't seen it and don't know much about it. I impugn the idea of bringing Darth Maul back after Phantom Menace. I will impugn that without having ever seen it. Well, you impugn the idea of bringing anything back from the prequels. Yeah, I'll impugn that. To, I'll impugn the idea of a Clone Wars TV series, because fuck the Clone Wars. Well... Whatever they're showing in that Clone Wars TV series, if it's congruent with what's shown in the prequels, then it's not congruent with anything I know about the Star Wars universe. So, fuck it. <sighs> 
And now we're getting back into what it was like to discuss Star Wars while the prequels were actually happening. Oh, <laughs> uh, this, this, even this movie is so much better than that. Okay, I have a question. Alright, what's your I need, question? I need you to advise me. Uh, well, that's, that's not this episode, but I can try. When Han and Kira get back together, mm -hmm. and Han's like, I want to tell you all about everything that happened to me, and Kira's like, ah, I don't really want to do that. Yeah. And, and Han's like, you know, I want to know everything, and Kira's like, well, if you knew everything, then you wouldn't be looking at me like that yeah. anymore. Yeah, and Kira's basically saying, well, if you knew I'm a Sith apprentice's apprentice, then things might be different. With Kira having this shameful background that she doesn't want to talk about, she especially doesn't want her boyfriend to find out about it, are they hinting that she used to be a prostitute, or have I simply been conditioned by the canon of Western popular culture that whenever there's a female character that has a past she's ashamed of and doesn't want her boyfriend to find out about it, I've just been conditioned to expect she used to be a prostitute? Why used to be? She's owned by... Paul Bettany, right? And there's that line at the end that I found particularly creepy when Darth Maul goes, you know, from now on we're going to be working a lot closer. Which would be difficult since he got his junk cut off along with his intestines. Okay. Um, I don't think that's an implication that's made by the movie. I think it's entirely congruent with everything that happens in the movie. I think it's absolutely something that would fit, but I don't think it's exactly indicated. So you're saying it's more that just I've been conditioned by popular culture that whenever there's a woman that has a past she's ashamed of and doesn't want her boyfriend to find out about, it's because she used to be a prostitute. And this movie is written by people relying on the trope of the woman who has a past that she's ashamed of or thinks people will think differently of her if they know. You know, that that's absolutely a trope that is often about sex workers and, and people with various other similar career paths. Because doesn't... <laughs> doesn't she say when they're trying to escape on Corellia that, you know, if they catch us, they're going to sell us to Crimson Dawn? Yeah. Isn't that, like, one of the possible horrible outcomes that she mentions when she talks about the risk of being recaptured yeah well that's that's the meaning of her branding right that she is literally owned by the crimson dawn and presumably i wanted to say presumably if han was caught and sold and branded he probably would not be in as high class a position as kira is and that's a very gendered trope yeah as well that, of course, I'm swimming in having grown up in a Western country uh, consuming Western cultural artifacts. And on that note, we are going to take a quick break and learn about the fine products available across this place to be nation that supports us. We will see you on the other side.
promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Place Relations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceFanation.com. We offer them to you on two great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, along with main event, Survey Says, the Monday Night Wars, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction show, as well as Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver special network podcasts and pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Match of the Week podcasts, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Through the Years, Worldcast, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Center Stage, and Letters from Kayfabe, plus much more. And on our very popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as Talkin' Pop, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, NBA Team, PTBM Play, Sunday Groove, Breaking Balls, and Lucha Undead. As well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans. With the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversations, Geek and Sassy, and Marvel Age Podcast. You can find all of these current shows, plus archives of our past podcasts, including The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback today. All these shows, plus others, available at PlaceVation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceVation.com slash Amazon when doing your online shopping, and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads, Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceVation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world.
welcome back. Can I also mention about that Darth Maul scene? Please. I don't know who they got to do his voice, but it's clearly not the guy that did his voice in Phantom Menace. Like, even if you're going to bring the character back, you can at least, like, actually bring him back. Like, they have the same actor, but they don't have the same voiceover guy. Yeah, I did notice that Ray Park was credited. Yeah, but Ray Park never did his voice. And did... Some other guy did, like, the voiceover for right. Phantom Menace. And it's clearly not the same guy that does the voiceover in this movie. It's a completely different voice. Which doesn't really make sense, since, like, his lungs and trachea are some of the only parts of him that he still has. The the man who did Darth Maul's voice in Solo uh, was in Star Wars Rebels, playing Darth Maul. <laughs> Wait, he's in that one too? I guess. He, I comes, guess. he comes back from the dead after Phantom Menace, he's in the Clone Wars, and he's still in the Rebels? I, I guess. Although I guess this is the period of time covered by Rebels, right? The, the, the early rebellion, that's what we see in Solo. Uh, he was also in Battlefront 2, the video game, as Darth Maul. So this is the dude that did his voice in the cartoon, not the guy that did his voice in Phantom Menace. Again, this is a thing where, you know, most people have seen the movie and not the cartoon. I suppose. Like, you wouldn't make a new Star Trek movie focusing on, like, Bem. Well, he was also in a uh, Star Trek fan film as the voice of the Guardian of Forever. If that's worth anything to you. So, like, how did Maul... I, 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 don't even, I don't even know if I want to know how he became, like, the crime lord of all the syndicates. But, like, there has to be a story about him and Prince Zizor from Shadows of the Empire, right? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, may, maybe, maybe that's what the sequel to Solo is about. That may or may not ever be made. I did find it kind of interesting that, like, the dream that Han and Kira had from the beginning was to, like, get off the planet and get a ship of their own and just be, like, fancy free flying across the galaxy doing jobs for themselves. And at the end of the movie, Han and Chewie have their own ship and they're sort of fancy free flying around the galaxy doing jobs for themselves. I thought that was kind of interesting. It sort of contradicts my whole previous point about he's solo, he's alone now, but... Well... He still sort of sees himself as Solo because he sees lack of attachment as freedom. Right. I think that goes back to the timeline, which I think we perceived kind of differently. I took the end of the movie where Han and Chewie are going to Tatooine to work for Jabba to mean that this movie took place like a week before New Hope. This movie explicitly says it's showing the very beginnings of the Rebellion. The beginnings of the Rebellion was Episode 3. I mean, that's what Enfant's Nest says. Is is that, you know, we're going to use this to kick off a rebellion against the Empire. I don't think she literally meant that there wasn't a rebellion and they were starting one. I think that was more about, this is the spark that's going to light the fire that's going to burn the Empire down. <laughs> that takes more than a week. Or, Plus, or... you know, he's got a, you know... How many jobs did he do for Jabba? Like, we know... No, no idea. We know the last job he did for Jabba was where he got intercepted and had to dump his cargo, and then he was on the run from Jabba for a while. I mean, even if you only need time for that... I don't know. I... I, I again, that's not explicit in the movie. 
at all, I suppose. I just got the impression that they were going to work for Jabba at the end of the movie, and that was the job that they were going to work for Jabba for. Especially, no. especially since Woody Harrelson apparently thought that that was going to be his retirement job. You know, he he's perpetually... Speaking of Lethal Weapon, he's perpetually, you know, a week from retirement as soon as he finishes this last job. Yeah, well, that's sort of a running gag. Well, in in all in, he, in he's heist always, movies too, yeah. Yeah, the, the, he's always about to retire, and like for some of them, like the the Rio character, they like just barely get him to mention retirement before he dies. Like it's literally like, "Hey, I'm thinking of retiring." Oh, I got shot. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> they just by barely the, squeezed it in. By the way, by the way. In terms of how this movie is interacting with fan expectations, they went through the entire movie characterizing Han Solo the way they did, and then at the very end, at the end, Han shoots first. Exactly. This is what <laughs> they, he... they in terms of everything they had to cram into this movie. You know, they did the dice and the blaster and the Wookiees. Uh, and Chewie's bandolier and, and all that stuff. They had to have him shoot first, and they did it right at the end, at the climax of the film. That's what he's learned. He's learned that he has to shoot first. That's what that's what Woody Harrelson's been telling him for the whole movie. Okay, this is the summary that's on Wikipedia. Yeah. Six years after the formation of the Galactic Empire. On the shipbuilding world of Corellia, a scumrat and aspiring pilot named Han and his lover... Holy fuck, that's how you spell Kira? That's how they spell Kira in this movie. Good god. So six years after Revenge of the Sith? Is that the date of the formation of the Empire? Is well, Revenge well, of the Sith? Well, that's that's when Palpatine goes from Chancellor to Emperor and declares that they're the Empire now. Six years? So it's like 15 years before New Hope? And then it's three years later when they do the jump. Right. At, so, right. nine years after... How many years is it from Revenge of the Sith to New Hope? Well, how old were Luke and Leia? Like, 20? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, they right. were they born were, at the end of the movie. They were about 18 or 20. Yeah. 18 to 20. So, nine to 11 years before New Hope. So, I was right when I said 10. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I... I wonder how that's established. Speaking of Wikipedia, I did look up Darth Maul. Yeah. <laughs> uh, through his hate and will to survive, Maul used the Force to grab an air vent as he was tumbling down the reactor shaft. He managed to make it into a trash container. His body was dumped on a junkyard world. He lived in the bowels of this planet, had his legs replaced... By a six-legged apparatus, and made a bargain with someone who agreed to bring him food. Over the years, Maul was driven mad with rage and despair, but remained driven by thoughts of revenge against Kenobi. Jesus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Whatever. Uh, Scott and Glenn sit here and read Wikipedia is not the most fascinating podcast we could do. Yeah. Apparently, I I just did a quick search and there don't apparently have a date. Most dates in Star Wars are given relative to the Battle of Yavin at the yes. end of New Hope. Yeah. So most dates are either before the Battle of Yavin or after the Battle of Yavin, and there does not appear to be a before the Battle of Yavin date in this entry. But it does say. 
six years after the formation of the Galactic Empire and then three years later. So that's approximately nine to ten years before New Hope. Someone else gave Darth Maul cybernetic legs using parts of separatist droids. Who gave him a small intestine and a digestive tract? And how did they do this before he died? Apparently he had run-ins with Obi-Wan during the Clone Wars. This is all... Uh, screw this. Let's not put this in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> did you notice when they were doing the Wookiee escape during the Kessel Raid... Yeah. All of the non-Chewbacca Wookiees have these really bad, hairless, rubber faces. There was the one who was featured the most, who kind of said goodbye to Chewbacca before he left in the Falcon, and yeah. I think was the one that he rescued first. And the, the one that Han says, hi, I'm Chewbacca's friend. Yeah, that one I did stand out as having a, like, kind of cheap-looking mask. There was... Wookiee masks are easy, you just cover it with hair! You'd think. You don't have to make a face! I mean, I guess... If you want to do some, like, variability in features of Wookiees, I think making it look worse is not the best call. I mean, what, did somebody just, like, make it wrong because they didn't know what a Wookiee was? And then they just said, well, fuck it, we don't have time to fix it now. Just I'm, film. I mean, if you want to know what other Wookiees look like, just watch the holiday special. Uh, exactly. Or Revenge of the Sith. Was that a veiled shout-out to the holiday special, actually, when, when Han said, you know, he, I'm not sure if Chewie said he was looking for his tribe or his family? You know, <laughs> he probably didn't say, I'm looking for Lumpy. Well, you know, there's a lot of references to different groups of people you might care about. Your tribe, your family, your people. Yes. This is a movie about connections and how Han Solo feels free without them. It because is... he's been betrayed by the people he felt connections with. Except for Chewbacca. It is definitely a movie about connections. It's about the connection between Han and Kira, uh, the kind of forced connection between Kira and Dryden Voss, the connection between Chewbacca and his people, the connection between Woody Harrelson and his wife, whose name I don't remember, and that sucks. I'm sorry. <laughs> Val. Val. Um... The four-armed pilot who says he doesn't need connections and then says, you know, maybe connections would be nice. Bye. He doesn't need connections, and he just barely gets to talk about retirement before he gets shot. You know, And then he says it's nice to not die alone. You know, the connection between the top half of Darth Maul's body and the bottom half of Darth Maul's body. <laughs> One thing I found interesting about this movie... Again, comparing it to Rogue One, the only other Star Wars story that we've had. Mm. This is easily the most disconnected from the rest of the Star Wars universe, Star Wars movie we've seen. Because, like, even Rogue One, that, like, didn't involve any of our original characters... That was still, like, incredibly tied into everything. Well, even in Rogue One, they show Mon Mothma, Bail Organa, Leia Organa, 3PO, R2-D2... Tarkin, Vader, the two guys from the Mos Eisley Cantina that Luke and Obi-Wan get in a fight with. Oh god, I forgot about them, yeah. <laughs> For a movie with no Jedis and no lightsabers and no main characters from the rest of the Star Wars saga, that had a lot of connective tissue to the rest of the Star Wars movies. In this movie, it's literally Han and Chewie. That's it. 
Yeah, well, I think... And I guess mall. Yeah, well, whatever. Um, yeah, I think that was very intentional. Because even, even aside from those characters, Rogue One, just the story, was tied right into New Hope, obviously. Well, yeah. Yeah, it ends five minutes before New Hope. That much is obvious. Um, <laughs> yeah, this one is intentionally not just for the sake of sequel bait, but also for the sake of establishing that you can do more of a variety of things with these Star Wars anthology spinoffs, that you can have them take place not, like, five minutes before one of the other movies. Now, what I'm waiting for is an anthology movie that's, say, between Jedi and Force Awakens, or one that's in some, like, radically different era well, I don't know. You say that. You say, well, you can tell one of these anthology movies that's and, not fun. And I don't want it to be the fucking Boba Fett movie. <laughs> A- anyway, continue. Well, that's related to my point. You say that we can make one of these movies that doesn't end five minutes before the start of one of the mainline movies. But then you also say, you know, did we really need a movie all about Han Solo's backstory? This isn't. This doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the Star Wars saga. It's got to go one way or the other. Well, I think you I think you can do a combination. I think you can do something like Solo that is at a bit of a different time in the timeline and like Rogue One in that it doesn't star someone from the mainline movies. I think I think you can do something set in the world of Star Wars in an era of the Star Wars universe that is not in one of those ways entirely interdependent. Well, at that point, it just becomes some random other story that happens to be in the same universe. Yeah, that also has the Empire and Jedis and Sith or something. Yeah, but what's the point of the story it's telling, then? If the story it's telling does not play directly into the mainline Star Wars films, and the story it's telling does not provide you more information about a character that you know about from the mainline Star Wars films, what's the point of that story? The... Same point as any movie. It, well, it's it's just that the environment is something that's known. But but there's no reason to place it in that environment. Why would you... If you're telling a story that has no characters from the Star Wars films and is not directly related to previous events in the Star Wars films, it's just a random disconnected story that happens to have a stormtrooper stationed in the town. What's the point of placing that story within the Star Wars universe? I think it would be very interesting to see different genres of stories placed into a familiar universe. You could do a thriller or a mystery or a romance or maybe not a western because we had enough desert planets. But, you know, you can do a lot of genres and a lot of styles of stories without necessarily having them star Han Solo. You could, but I guarantee you that the mainline reaction to every single one of those would be, why is this movie set in the Star Wars universe? Why does this movie have the name Star Wars on it? What about this movie necessitated... What about the story that this movie is telling necessitated it being set in the Star Wars universe? And if the answer is just, I like stuff that's in the Star Wars universe, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. The necessity of fiction, I think, is something that it's easy to focus too much on. 
I realize you started this show by saying, was it necessary to have a Han Solo uh, 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 movie? The word you're looking for is movie. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Origin story. But that's that, That's just because I expected it to be very bad. <laughs> you know, if something is very bad, then I think you can question the necessity of it. Or, or just not good. Um, I think making a good movie kind of obviates the question of necessity. I just think that, like, that's not going to happen, and no one would, like, want that to happen. Maybe. Because, like, from the studio side, if you're going to attach your movie to the franchise and say, yeah. this is a Star Wars movie, people are going to want to see a Star Wars movie. They're going to want to see space fights and laser blasts and lightsaber fights and some cool Force stuff and the heroes and the villains and... Well... With these anthology movies, I think they're conditioning the audience a little more to not need the Jedi or the Sith or cool Force stuff as much. Despite Darth Maul, again. <laughs> and on the other side, if you're going to write a story... Again, I keep saying it, but I can't think of any other way of saying it. If you're just writing a story about, like, you know... There's no reason to do, like, You've Got Mail in the Star Wars universe. You know, there's no reason to do, like, Silent Hill in the Star Wars universe. There's no reason to do, like, the Pelican Brief in the Star Wars universe. There's no point to that. Well, okay. You, if, you, if those are the stories you want to tell, you can tell them without using the billion dollar franchise. Yeah, but then who's going to see it? Who's going to go see You've Got Mail set on, like, some random planet we've never heard of before in the Star Wars universe and be satisfied with that? You know the reaction that's going to get. This was clearly an attempt to cash in on the Star Wars fan base without offering us an actual Star Wars film. They think they could just make any damn thing and just slap the Star Wars name on it and show a Star Destroyer in the sky and we're all going to flock to it because it's Star Wars. Fuck Disney. Fuck Kathleen Kennedy. Fuck these SJW filmmakers who have stolen the franchise from St. Lucas, who never did anything wrong. Wow, there's a soundbite. There, there, there's, there's a soundbite you could probably get on a lot of Star Wars podcasts, but anyway. <laughs> I'm not even... I mean, I mean that's, an ex that's an extreme example. I'm, 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 just, I'm just saying... There's a lot of variety you could do. And maybe you can't do it without any character who was in any of the movies, but maybe, like, I don't know, maybe Bosk, a Star Wars story, is, you know, a tragic romance or something. <laughs> you know, may may maybe, maybe you do, like, the theory of everything, except it's about the guy who invented the Bacta tank. I don't know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying there's a lot of... There's got to be a lot that you could do, but conditioning the audience to accept that is slow, and a lot of people won't. And so maybe as a commercial enterprise, I'm not thinking of this as, as a commercial enterprise because I don't work for Disney and I'm not a Disney shareholder, so I don't give a crap about their bottom line. <laughs> 
I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thinking about it as a person who watches movies. Sometimes. When they're Star Wars movies. I don't get out a lot. <laughs> Do you actually listen to other Star Wars podcasts? Um, I think I just referred to us as a Star Wars podcast. <laughs> Are we a... Well... We're, we're much more of a Star Trek podcast than a Star Wars podcast. I Oh man, I wanted us to be just an anything I'm interested in podcast, but we haven't done a single episode about this old house. Yet! Get at me, listeners, if you want it. I was listening to this podcast that I listen to occasionally just because I was curious to see if they had a reaction to the Solo movie. And they were talking about the recent thing where a bunch of internet racists bullied Kelly Marie Tran off of social media. Oh yeah, this oh god, the fucking fanboys jumping on her. And they did the same thing to Daisy Ridley on Instagram, I think. And like the there was like two hosts on this podcast, and the one of them was like, you know, this is a horrible thing. Why is there this toxic element within our fandom? You know, they should be. Why don't people understand the message of inclusion and you know all the. Disp- disparate groups of people joining together for a common cause that is the message of the Star Wars movies and then the other host is like well, it's okay if you don't like the character and you have criticisms of the actress and you don't think that was good and you think the character was overused and, and you think it was characterized badly and you think the movie sucked and, and you think the actor should die and I don't know if he actually yeah. said the die part but he's I, I just turned it off I'm done with that yeah seriously seriously well I mean for one thing, as to why is there this toxic element in Star Wars fandom, those toxic elements are in every fandom because geek culture was a mistake. <laughs> because so much of geek culture is a way that male nerds convince themselves that just because they're not jocks and maybe because they got picked on by jocks means that they can't engage in toxic masculinity. I just think that when a bunch of racists get together to bully a person on social media... Maybe what you thought of a movie isn't the point! Yeah, the reaction to that is not, it's okay to have criticisms. Like, not in this context! This is not the time for criticisms! This is the time for human decency! (sighs) But anyway, you brought up other Star Wars podcasts and I had a story to share. Can we talk about the casting in this movie? Can we talk about the casting in all of these movies? You're <laughs> trying to drag us back to the point. Uh, okay, yes, let's talk about it. Force Awakens. Yes. Starring Daisy Ridley. Yes. Uh, you did this at the beginning of the show. Rogue One. Starring Felicity Jones. Yes. Han Solo. Featuring Amelia Clark. Mm-hmm. It's nice that Star Wars has girls in it now. Yeah. It would be even nicer if they had, like, more than the same girl all the time. It, yeah, if, They definitely have a type, is if, what I'm trying to say. If if all the ones who have more than ten... If, if some of the starring women in these movies were not, like, brunette white women? Not just brunette white women. They literally look, they look very, very similar. They they do definitely have a type, yeah. And I think that's... I mean, the story structure is a large part of it, but a small part of the furious speculation about Rey having to be a Skywalker, because she looks so much like Leia and Padme. <laughs> and, and there were people theorizing about Jyn Erso, too, before Rogue One opened. Yeah, I've already seen shit online about, is Rey descended from Kira? 
Oh my god! I, I just think it's... That, oh god. That's, that's one reason why... I mean, we're getting into other Star Wars movies now, but, like, that is one reason I'm extremely trepidatious about J.J. coming back for Episode Nine because he is just the sort of person who would, like, stuff a lot of The Last Jedi back in the box and go, No, she is part of a family! It's a big mystery reveal! That is possibly my worst fear of Episode Nine is that J.J. is going to try to rebuild all of his mystery bullshit that Ryan Johnson effectively dispensed with in The Last Jedi. Yeah. Oh, man. Because J.J., it was perfect. It was perfect. He did Episode Seven, and then, you know, he was a producer or whatever, but he wasn't making the movies anymore because J.J. is very, very good at beginning things, and he is not good at ending things. <laughs> So, so yes, for, for that reason, too, his obsession with the mystery boxes and failure in many instances to actually have them contain something worth having focused on for a while, uh, yes, trepidatious is the word. It's the word, it's the feeling. Speaking of Episode Nine, let's... Is there going to be another Star Wars movie in December this year? Or is it going to be, like... 18 months before the next Star Wars movie. It's going to be 18 months before Episode Nine. Why was this thing rushed out in May instead of just letting it wait till December? Especially with all the reshoot bullshit they had to do. Another six months of working on this thing could have led to a much better movie. And I don't dislike the movie we got, but it, six months of more polish and like a more relaxed reshoot schedule and a little more breathing room since the last one to build some anticipation... None of that would have harmed it. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of that is determined by business factors that I don't pay a lot of attention to. Like, I'm not sure what Disney has opening at the end of the year. Although, this couple of months here is extremely busy for Disney. Like, they just opened Avengers and Incredibles. And they shoehorned Star Wars in there in the middle. And Ant-Man's coming up soon, because they played the trailer for that thing 800 times before uh, yeah, Star Wars. Yeah, Ant-Man's in July, I think, so... Uh, they have a lot going on, so I don't, I, don't know why, I don't know why they pulled it out of December other than just... I mean, it feels more like a bright summer blockbuster, I suppose, but they didn't need to rush it out. I thought that was a nice little, you know, every year we get a Star Wars movie in December. I thought that was a nice little pattern. If they're going to manage to make one of these things every year, then having it come out the same time every year just to get people used, oh, it's December, it's time for me to go see Star Wars. Yeah. That would not have hurt box office. Maybe it wouldn't be the $340 million flop it is <laughs> if they had given it a little more breathing room since the last one and released it at the time of year that people are now used to going to see a Star Wars movie every year. Anyway. I didn't get to introduce that section with, speaking of things I didn't like about this movie, the release date. <laughs> well, speaking of things I didn't like about... Oh, were you going to say something? I was going to go to the score, but I don't know. Speaking of things I didn't like about this movie, the score was not by Michael Giacchino. That was a mistake. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Okay. Let's get into it. What was your reaction when it was announced that John Powell was going to be doing this movie? And what was your reaction when they announced that John Williams was making a cameo to write 
a Han Solo theme that John Powell would then use in his score for the film. Uh, maybe you just gave it in its entirety with why isn't Giacchino doing this, but uh, what else was your reaction? Yeah, I thought we'd establish Giacchino as the man to do these things if Williams isn't going to be bothered. I don't know anything about John Powell. I know that he's done such classic scores as Gigli and Agent Cody Banks. He did the score to Jumper, which was the movie that made me realize that no, it's not just George Lucas's direction. Hayden Christensen really is that bad an actor. So I, that's a nice little Star Wars connection. For me, it was the one where he played the journalist. Stephen Glass, I think it was. Whatever. Um, I mean, I, I don't know any John Powell scores. I, I don't know anything about him. I mean, I hoped it would be good. I mean, you never know. Maybe it'll be good. There was a time when I had never heard a G. Kino score. There was a time when I had never heard a Williams score. Although I don't think I can remember that far back. I think I think literally my earliest memory includes a Williams score. My earliest memory that I can pin a date on, I believe, includes a John Williams score. Yeah, your earliest memory is going to see Return of the Jedi, right? No, that didn't come out until I was like five. Yeah. Oh, oh, was it the Empire Strikes Back bootleg? <laughs> there are these two of them, and I don't remember which one took place first. It was either the day that New Hope premiered on HBO... And Mom wanted to tape it, but our TV had a thing where once it got warmed up, it would the picture would go all fuzzy, and so she told me, don't turn the TV on when you get up in the morning, because it was going to be on at like 7 in the morning on HBO. It probably wasn't the premiere, it probably premiered like the previous Saturday, maybe this was the following Tuesday or something like that, but I remember she said, don't turn on the TV when you get up, because I want to watch this thing at 7 o'clock, and I want the TV to work. Because that TV, once it got warmed up after an hour or two, the picture would start to go fuzzy. And I forgot all about that. I got up first thing in the morning, and I knew she wanted to watch HBO, so I turned on HBO and watched, wound up watching like the last hour of Poltergeist before Star Wars came on. I also remember when Empire was in theaters, and our cousin Steven managed to get a bootleg tape of Empire, since Mom and Dad... I don't know what was going on, but for, some, for whatever reason they couldn't get out to the theater. You were too. They couldn't get out to the theater. I don't think I was that much of a handful. If I was two, I wouldn't remember this. Any any kid is a handful. If this if I if this really was when I was two, then like this probably is the earliest memory. But I remember Stephen came over with the bootleg tape of Empire, and and I remember them talking about it, they got this bootleg tape of Empire, and they tried to play it, and the picture didn't work. It was like you know completely scrambled and and fuzzy, and you couldn't make anything out. And everyone's like, oh, that's such a disappointment. I would have liked to have seen Empire. And I remember thinking at the time, well, of course, it's not going to work. You just said this is a bootleg tape. Our VCR uses square tapes. I knew enough that, like, you know, if I tried to say, if I tried to explain this incredibly simplistic concept to them, they'd just mock me for being a kid, and so I didn't explain it to them. But I knew what was going on. I knew what stupid thing the adults were trying to do. Yeah, you said the darndest things. Anyway, what was I talking about before you brought that shit up? Okay, yeah, John Powell. So, I mean, there's always hope. It's not like when they got Alexandre Desplat to do Rogue One where I listened to Desplat scores and know that they suck balls. I, I, I didn't have any bad opinion of John Powell going in. I was just disappointed it wasn't Giacchino. John Powell is uh, very, very well-liked for a lot of his uh, recent scores, especially the two uh, How to Train Your Dragon scores, which were very bright, very action-oriented, 
uh, had a lot of uh, great thematic integration, which boded well for his work on Star Wars, since that requires a lot of bright action music and themes. Themes are always good. Yeah. And so, when they announced that Williams was doing the Han Solo theme, I was a little perplexed. That was coming right off The Last Jedi, which, as discussed, I was underwhelmed by in the extreme. I liked it a lot, but it was definitely... it had its drawbacks. Like, I understand that, that obviously, in terms of Star Wars music, John Williams is basically God. Well, and course. so if he decides to come down from the mountain and contribute a theme, then that's your theme. I thought it was very interesting. I saw some reaction online, or you showed me some reaction online, where people are like, you know, this is such a great endorsement of John Powell that Williams is writing a score, or writing a theme for his score, and he didn't do this for G. Kino. That's such a slight on G. Kino. Whereas I saw it kind of the exact opposite, like... John Powell needs help from Williams in order to get themes into this movie, while Giacchino was able to do it not only on his own, but, like, in, like, two weeks, because he was brought on at the last damn second when Desplot bailed. Yeah, there, there were stories going around about how Kathleen Kennedy showed Williams Rogue One, and he was not impressed, and recommended John Powell to be hired for Solo. Really? That it's a it's a story that I read. I don't know how much credence to give it, but it's it's something that I've seen discussed a lot. People are saying, you know, it's a story that you read, as in some douche in a message board thread said that what's what happened, or it's a story you read in like an article about scoring solo. It's something that I read in some message board threads. Okay, uh, which so who knows if it has any relation to fact? True. Yeah. Fair. And indeed, in message board threads that were disappointingly dismissive of Giacchino's work in general. But anyway. Well, that just shows they know nothing. But I was still I was still kind of optimistic when they hired John Powell, because I know he can do a lot of the bright action music. I know he can, he can do themes, I know that. He can do a lot of different kinds of action styles as well. He did the, um, the first three Bourne movies and really defined a lot of the action sound for sometime in that kind of action thriller. And and so he's absolutely qualified. And I think he did a really good job. Um, I think he did especially well integrating the Williams material, so much so, actually, that the Williams suite that opens the soundtrack for this movie sounds exactly like a Williams piece written, conducted entirely by John Williams. Yes. And then when you get into the John Powell material for the body of the score, he uses various parts of the John Williams material. There are there are a couple different discrete segments that Powell uses quite a lot and integrates them so well into his own style that they indeed sound Entirely different, so much so that the Williams suite, composed, conducted, done by John Williams, sounds entirely out of place. Well, you're sort of spinning that in a positive direction. I like a lot of things about this score. I, I do. I genuinely like a lot of things about this score. I think it's a good score. I think it works in the movie. I think it's better in the movie than on the CD, but, I mean, that's how you judge a score, because, like... 
it's not composed to be a listening experience on CD. It's composed to help augment and improve a movie viewing experience. And so that's how you judge the score. And I think it works better in the movie than on the CD. And so I, I do genuinely really like this score in a lot of ways. However, listening to it, even in the movie to an extent, but especially listening to it on the CD, it does not sound like a Star Wars score. I thought that at first. That's the difference that you're hinting at, is the John Williams track sounds like John Williams' Star Wars music. The G. Kino stuff in Rogue One sounded like it fit into the Star Wars music milieu. Right. Most of this John Powell stuff doesn't quite fit in that milieu of music that Williams has established and G. Aquino managed to fit himself into. I think that's, uh, again doing something that the movie is doing and kind of moving into a more modern aesthetic. You know, ki kind of staying within the Star Wars style, but kind of moving the needle towards something a little more modern. The music is part of that, and the music is helping with that. And actually, I did think very much that it didn't sound like a Star Wars score uh, when I first listened to the album, and then uh, when we went to see the movie the first time. But the more I listened to it, the more that the brass writing, especially, because Star, Star Wars scores traditionally are very, very reliant on strong brass melodies and layerings in terms of the orchestration yes. of, of, of different kinds of brass and, and, and different things going on in, in, in the brass section. And the way that he does that, especially in the action cues, I think is very Star Wars. The more I listen to it, uh, when we saw the movie again uh, as a refresher before recording this, and the more I've listened to the album, I think that sort of style sounds very much like Star Wars. Mm. Where it differs, <laughs> where it differs a great deal. The Infant's Nest theme does not sound anything like anything you would expect in a Star Wars score. And that's not a bad thing. I like that theme. It's a good theme. But yeah. I mean, if you put that theme in Return of the Jedi or Force Awakens, it would sound badly out of place. That's probably my favorite new theme in the movie. I'm not. I'm not bad mouthing it. I'm just saying it stylistically feels different from Star Wars music we've gotten before this movie. It does, because that the particular choral style that is most often used for the Enfys Nest theme is part of a style that's used in a lot of films. It reminded me strongly, that first track where it shows up during the train heist, right. it reminded me strongly of Klaus Padelt's Time Machine score. Yeah, yeah, the the segments in the in the far future in in the time machine is definitely reminiscent of that. There's a whole there's a whole uh, cultural moment for that kind of style of uh, strong kind of uh, higher pitched. Uh, I don't know if it was literally like a, a, a women's choir or children's choir or, or, or something, um, or maybe it was just in a higher register. Um, there's definitely a cultural moment when, when that was uh, used quite a bit in a lot of films. And so importing that into Star Wars, again, is something that brings it into a more, I don't want to say mundane, but, but into a more common sort of milieu. Um, Star Wars music has always felt timeless in a way. It's the reliance on brass... It's the style that Williams uses. It harks back to older Hollywood stuff. It's the long themes and the long tracks and the, and the connected bits. And, and 
the big, bold brass themes, it sounds timeless in a way. And this stuff with, with the choral bit and all the percussion that he puts in the tracks, it doesn't sound timeless like that. I did want to mention the percussion because that's the thing that stands out for me the most in terms of not sounding quote-unquote like Star Wars. Because some of the drum loops and the kind of techno drum pads that Powell uses during some of the uh, action scenes. Well, there is a there, there is a few tracks where he quotes extensively. He just does Williams themes, not the Han Solo themes, but he does he does Tie Fighter Attack for like a good minute or two. But it's like Tie Fighter Attack on speed with a drum line. It's 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 the it's the trip hop version of Tie Fighter Attack. It's like TIE Fighter Attack, except before it starts playing, Keanu Reeves comes out and says, On Congo and Bongos, it's the Robot Usses! Yes, the, the evil Robot Usses do TIE Fighter Attack, and then the evil Robot Usses do the Asteroid Field. Well, the evil Robot Usses are doing the TIE Fighter Attack, and the good Robot Usses are playing the Congo and Bongos. Uh, That's the division of labor here, right? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> And of course, all of the robots are slaves. Mean meanwhile, in the middle of the battle, Station takes the helm. <laughs> There's a pattern. Tell me what you thought of this. Listening to this again, going to see the movie again, and then listening through the CD a second time... The first half of this movie, like, up until the heist... Up until the Kessel heist... It seems very, very reliant on the Williams Han Solo theme. Like, the Infant's Nest theme gets in there when they show up at the train heist, and there's, like, little bits of other stuff. There's a love theme that we'll get to that shows up once in a while. There's, like, a gang... There's, like, a like a march motif for the heists that, that plays during the heists, but for the most part... The first half of the movie is very, very, very reliant on that Han Solo theme. It's the solo theme, and then the solo theme, and then the solo theme, and then the love theme for like 30 seconds, and then the solo theme, and then the solo theme, and then the solo theme, and then Infant's Nest shows up, and then the solo theme, and then the solo theme, and then the solo theme, and then the solo theme. And it gets tiring, frankly. And then right after the Kessel heist, and the Kessel tracks are probably my favorites, because it has that march... That I'm not sure if it's like a theme for the gang or if it's a theme for L3. I think they both have themes and I can't tell the difference between them. <laughs> but that little march that's in the mine mission track and then the next track as well, the breakout track, the, the, whole, the two castle tracks, is just probably my favorite tracks on the CD. And then after that, when they're escaping after the castle heist, is when he starts going heavy into original trilogy themes. TIE Fighter Attack with the drumline, Asteroid Field, heavy on Asteroid Field, the Rebel Fanfare comes up over and over again, Star Wars main title comes up a few times, he goes heavy, that whole escape from the Kessel heist, he goes heavy on the original trilogy themes. Um, and it sort of breaks up the monotony of like the over-reliance on the solo theme that characterized the first half of the score. The, the original trilogy themes come up a little more once they get the Falcon. There's that, there's that scene... That is brilliant. That one bit when they first see the Falcon and they play the Star Wars main title, and it's like kind of slow and elongated, that is fucking brilliant. Yeah, that is... 
a variation of, of Luke's theme that we've never had before. It's very long and grand with the choir backing. Um, it's like Star Wars main title, but reorchestrated as an epic reveal. Yes. And it works. It's brilliant. Um, I think Powell has said in articles and interviews and such, not just on message boards, <laughs> that he used Luke's theme, the Star Wars main theme. It hasn't been Luke's theme in a very long time. We've been over this. It wasn't even Luke's theme in the last movie Luke was in. No. Powell has said that he that he used the main title theme as a sort of destiny theme for Han when... Um, He's kind of marking waypoints on, on, on his destiny. So when we see the Falcon, when he takes command of the Falcon and during the Kessel Run, when he makes the Kessel Run this big, iconic waypoint uh, uh, signpost. The first in, time Chewie sits down as co-pilot. Exactly. Uh, when, when these uh, kind of pieces start locking together to form Han's backstory as we know it. And meanwhile, the Rebel fanfare, I think he said, was more associated with the Falcon itself as, as you know, the vehicle, as, as, as you know, the dashing escape maneuvers and all that stuff. Um, which I think is a little strange. Um, that's kind of how Williams used the Rebel fanfare in The Force Awakens. It, it was associated with the Falcon um, hmm. in particular. Which I think is very reasonable to do after Return of the Jedi, when the Falcon represents, you know, the legacy of the Rebellion, and it's it's literally, like, you know, still existing history of the Rebellion. Um, I think that makes a little more sense to do, to do that there than it does in a prequel time frame. But of course, one of the things that a prequel does is, 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 um, is very forward-looking. Yeah. By necessity, in most cases. Right. So that that is some very strong foreshadowing. I mean, that's um, the entire conceit of the prequel. Basically, yeah. True. Uh, but, but those uses were very conscious on Powell's part. Meanwhile, I'm a little ambivalent about the Kessel Run sequence when TIE Fighter Attack is brought in and the asteroid field is brought in. And the Death Star motif, and, and, and oh a yeah, bunch that's of these brilliant. Things. Can we talk about that? Because uh, that's sure. something. That's something else that I love that Giacchino did. Is he used the New Hope version of the Imperial theme, and he also used the Death Star motif when they showed the Death Star in Rogue One, and and Powell does. During the train heist, when the stormtroopers start shooting at Woody Harrelson, he plays the New Hope version of the Imperial theme. I th which I think is... I was so excited the first time I recognized that. I just, like, pointed at the screen, like, yeah! It was so good. Yeah, I, I, did, not, I did not notice that at first. I, I, I needed to have you point that out to me, but when I noticed it, it was just... It was so, again, so well integrated into Powell's style, too. And then he uses the Death Star motif when he shows the Star Destroyer that's blockading Kessel, which... Yeah doesn't quite fit if you go by the letter of what stuff is supposed to mean, but it sounds cool. And yeah. it, it sounds very imposing. I mean, that's what it was for in New Hope, is this giant, imposing stamp of the Empire. And that's what that Star Destroyer is in that scene, is this giant, imposing stamp of the Empire. I'm a little ambivalent about using TIE Fighter Attack just whole cloth, and Asteroid Field just whole cloth, with drum loops... <laughs> I kind of feel like it's 
maybe pushing those nostalgia buttons a little too hard. Well, it's not like Williams didn't do practically the same thing in The Last Jedi, just without the drum loops. Yeah, I didn't really appreciate that about The Last Jedi. We discussed this. <laughs> I was discussing this with a, uh, with a friend of mine who was saying that it would have been a great opportunity for John Powell to compose something like Asteroid Field or like TIE Fighter Attack in that it's a iconic, singular piece that isn't just repeating iconic singular pieces from the past. I mean, that's something that Williams did in Star Wars and his other classic scores over and over and over again, where you have pieces that aren't necessarily the repeated themes, but like Asteroid Field is something that comes out of nowhere and is just a big set-piece cue. I don't know, I kind of understand that point, but on the other hand... I am endlessly fascinated by this cultural artifact we now have, which is TIE Fighter Attack on speed with a drum line. Whoo, boy. We wouldn't have had... You know what it reminds me of more than anything? You know those old albums they released in the 70s? When, like, right after Star Wars hit and Star Wars was the most popular thing, and so, like, everyone and their brother put out, like, knockoff Star Wars music albums... And they were all, like, you know, you mean, pop music, Star Wars, and, like, disco Star Wars, and, like, just all this schlock put out to try to cash in on the popularity of the Star Wars music wasn't as widely available because they weren't exactly anticipating it to be the sensation it became. Oh, the Star Wars soundtrack was very widely available, but the knockoff market was big as well. You you mean the, like, the electric Moog Orchestra and yeah. Nico and, and all those? Yeah, all, all, all of those weird various genre Star Wars knockoff albums they came out with in 78. That's what this reminds me of. It's like a 2018 version of it. It's TIE Fighter Attack, except it's like way too fast and it's got a drum line in it. It's, it's like weirdly not quite right, but it's fascinating in its own right. I, I, underst I understand the appeal of it as a curiosity. I'm just not all that impressed with it in the movie <laughs> well here's here's my other point when it, regardless of all of my points about like does this feel like star wars music normally feels all of this music works in the movie like the drum lines that sound sort of ridiculous on their own but they work in the movie to help build tension and build excitement the infant's nest theme when it hits during the train heist at the beginning it it works it, it heightens the excitement of that scene. It works. It makes the whole thing just a really fun experience. Like I said, it works to support the movie. It doesn't feel like I'm used to a Star Wars score feeling. It doesn't sound like I'm used to a Star Wars score sounding. But for this movie, judged separately from the Star Wars name, not judging it by, you know, 40-year-old Star Wars established stuff, just on its own as an entertainment experience... It works. It enhances the film. It makes it more fun, more exciting. Yeah, and that's and that's one of the things that hiring John Powell for your action movie brings. Like, if they just did straight TIE Fighter Attack, it would be, you know, oh, I recognize that. That's TIE Fighter Attack. That's good music. I enjoy hearing it. But that's sort of the end. Speeding it up and adding the drum line, it helps build the excitement in that moment. I'm a little more of a fan of the ways that he uses the uh, uh, Williams Han theme, though. I know you said you, you found it maybe a little too much. Yeah, I think he overuses that theme, especially in the first half of the movie. I really appreciate the variety of arrangements and ways that he uses it. 
especially since there are um, at least two discrete parts of it. Yeah. Um, th there's there's one part that's much more of a rhythmic bass that he uses for a lot of the chase scenes, especially the car chase on Corellia, that I really appreciate. The other part of the new Williams material he uses more as a more of a soulful theme for Han for the yearning for the stars yeah, uh, aspect of of the character, and that's something that gets to play off of the love theme a little more in in a lot of the scenes between Han and and Kira. The only problem with the Han theme is that second aspect of it that you mentioned, like the Han theme, B theme, sort of. It is Poe Dameron's theme? It is very close to Poe Dameron's theme. Yes, it is. Like, like I put together this comparison. Like, this is the a bit of the Han Solo theme from the track Flying with Chewie, which is right after they escape from the planet where Han... It's right after they escape from the slave pit where Chewie is supposed to eat Han and they manage to escape from there and then go track down Woody Harrelson's band of bandits and get on the ship with them. And they play this version of Han's theme, the sort of Han theme, B theme. And then this is the Poe Dameron theme from the track I Can Fly Anything in Force Awakens. It's very similar. It sounds very similar. It is quite similar, yeah. Like, I don't know that they have the same notes as each other, but they sound very similar when you listen to them. There, there are a few things that I think, especially for you, jumped out as being reminiscent. Well, do you want to move on from this and get to the... Oh, man. Do you want to move on from this and get to that? Yeah, let's talk about the love theme. <sighs> the love theme... The first time I heard the love theme, I said, That sounds like that opera song. Yeah. And let me tell you, it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world to find the name of a track when literally all you know about it is that opera song. But this is such a famous fucking opera song that I was easily able to find it despite only knowing it's an opera song. This is the love theme from the Lando's Closet track. And this is an instrumental version of the track Nessun Dorma from the Puccini opera Turnadot. Turnadot? That's the name of the opera.
It's the same fucking track! Like, it's turn a dot with a couple of notes clipped, and again, on speed. Like, even more on speed than TIE Fighter Attack. The love theme, I think, is very, very reminiscent of, like, an old Hollywood style. Because old Hollywood ripped off a lot of stuff from operas? Well, sometimes, but even aside from the opera stuff. Just just the way that it's orchestrated and the, the way that it's <laughs> used in the score, especially in... But, I mean, it's it's distracting! Every time I hear it, I go, that's the opera song! It's, it is so identical that it literally pulls me out of the movie every time I hear it. And it's also very stylistically different from, like, almost all of the other music in the movie. So, it, it stands out as not quite fitting, even apart from all of the other movie, music in the movie. E even just on its own, it stands out as different and not fitting in, even before you factor in the part that it makes you think of, hey, that's that opera song. It does kind of feel altogether more melodramatic than I'd expect for something for this love story, if you want to call it that. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But again, it's, it's a fine theme and all. Well, we were just talking about how Star Wars always sort of feels timeless. And the style harkens back to, like, old Hollywood stuff of, like, the 40s. Or even more than that, to, like, 19th century romanticism. And this score, you were just saying, is a more modern thing. It's got the... It's, it's faster, it's got the drumline, it's got the percussion. But then there's this love theme that you just said is like old Hollywood, and it's based on an opera tune. This love theme doesn't fit into this score the same reason this score doesn't sound like Star Wars. I mean, it does seem to have a somewhat different influence, but I, I still... I don't have as much of a problem integrating it as you do, I think. Lots of stuff sounds like something else to me. Like, we've talked about this before. Every, half the shit I hear, I go, hey, that reminds me of something, and I can never quite put my finger on what. I can never quite figure out what, and usually it's it doesn't actually sound like the thing that I'm trying to remember that I can't actually remember. This literally is this fucking opera song, and it's like such a famous opera song that even I recognized it and was able to find the name of it knowing literally nothing about it except it's from an opera it's so recognizable it pulls me out of the movie when they play it it might be my biggest criticism of the score is this love theme that's that's interesting I honestly don't find it as distracting can I ask a question now uh sure is the imperial march in universe now Oh, man, it... Oh, I suppose it is, huh? Like, that's literally the music the Empire uses for itself within the Star Wars universe. Well, it's like the Imperial March in a major key. You know, it, it's it, it's like a novelty version of the Imperial March you'd find on YouTube. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I guess it is, but it's still... It strikes me as weird. Like, the Imperial March is designed to be imposing and and domineering. You'd think the Empire wouldn't use that for their, like, bring peace to the galaxy. Which, by the way, that advertisement was very... It, it, it stood out as, like, being almost identical to U.S. military recruitment ads. I liked that. Oh, absolutely. And not just because they played 20 minutes of U.S. military recruitment ads before the movie. Yeah, that was weird. They didn't do that when we were there the first time. 
One of the impressions I got from this score was that there was a lot more emphasis on producing a variety of themes for a lot of different things than there was for, for example, Rogue One, in which I believe we said during our Rogue One show that it's kind of sad that due to the structure of the story, you can't make anything else with these characters. We're not going to hear these themes again. Yeah, that's true. With everything that they did in Solo, especially the gratuitous sequel bait, I think the intention was to have a variety of themes that you could come back to in the Solo cinematic sub-universe. Well, they would reuse the Solo theme and the... the solo theme and the Chewy and... And yeah, the Chewy theme that we sort of had trouble finding, but it's in there. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the love theme, maybe the uh, shorter motif for the uh, Crimson Dawn. Yeah, and that and the heist theme, you could use that on, like, you know, other smuggling jobs and shit. Sure. So that's, that's something else that I think goes into the uh, sequel bait that may or may not happen. Of course, they avoided the musical spoilers on this CD... Yeah, I noticed they, they they didn't include the Duel of the Fates bit in that track. No. Yeah. Over fear of spoilers. Oh, God. Could you imagine, though? Could you imagine the, the reaction when people, like, get the album early and they're listening to it, like, before opening night and Duel of the Fates is in the middle of it? I suppose. But, I mean, I'm still kind of disappointed it's not there, you know, just to hear what they did with it. It's hard, it's hard to make out just like seeing it in the movie. I, I, I want to be able to listen to it a few times and see how it works and what he did with that theme. Well, I think you could hear a fair, a fair bit of it. I think what he did with it was kind of interesting, uh, where the, um, the more rhythmic part of Duel of the Fates was kind of rumbling out and then kind of uh, came out a little more explicitly when you actually saw, again, Darth Maul with both halves of his body. <laughs> I don't know, I feel sort of weirdly conflicted about this score. Really? Still? Because, like, on the one hand, it doesn't really feel like Star Wars, but on the other hand, it works in the movie. And then maybe, I don't know, maybe the movie doesn't feel like Star Wars. Maybe movies don't have to feel like Star Wars anymore. I mean, to a certain extent, nothing's ever going to feel like the original trilogy. So, like, you know... The first time I listened to this music, I went like, Ugh, that doesn't sound like Star Wars. But the more I listen to it, the more I like it. And I think it works well in the movie. I like it in the movie, and I like it when I listen to it more and more. It, it, so, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. It doesn't sound like Star Wars. Well, I think even with the Williams scores, there are distinct phases. You know, the original trilogy is a distinct phase in Williams's career. You know, that is, that is all very much of a piece. More so Empire and Jedi, because there are things from New Hope that aren't picked up. You know, because by the time he was doing Empire Jedi, obviously he knew he was doing a series. But um, then you go to the prequels, and the prequels have a definite style. The prequels are definitely in Williams's, you know, late '90s, early 2000s style. And then the sequel trilogy thus far has some elements of the prequel style and a lot of elements of the original trilogy style that Williams has really tried to bring back and, and kind of bolster some of that original trilogy-style brass writing, for example, which, yeah, which I think decreased a little over the course of the prequels. Yeah. So, so even within those, you have 
distinct phases of Williams' career, which obviously you're going to get over the course of decades. And so th there are different things that sound like Star Wars and, like it or not, are equally Star Wars. And with Rogue One, you had G. Kino integrating very, very, very tightly into the original trilogy Williams' sound. While, while bringing some of his own personal style, but frankly his own personal style has always been very close to Williams. <laughs> Which is absolutely one thing you can do, but there may be limits with that approach. If only in terms of the sorts of talent that you can source to actually do a Williams score. I mean, there's a reason he's been at the top of the mountain for decades. Mm. And just like... You can try to make different style movies in the Star Wars universe. You, you want to bring in people who can do different styles of scores. And if you're making something that in the cinematography and the shooting style, I think, had more elements of a modern action movie, in terms of some of the uh, handheld camera shots during the chase scenes and such, in, in terms of a lot of things like that, moving it into kind of more of a modern blockbuster action style, you get someone like a John Powell who is very well versed in the modern blockbuster action style, and yet can do it in that thematic, brass-heavy way that integrates it with Star Wars. It was pleasantly brass-heavy. I did like that. It had themes, and it had a lot of brass. Those are good things. Oh, well, there you go. Our score segment could have been 30 seconds. Those are, the th <laughs> those are the things I was most fearing would be absent from the Alexandria Desk plot score. Man, I am still curious about what Desplat would have produced just as a curiosity. But, I mean, obviously I'm very glad we got what we did with Rogue One, because yeah. that was excellent. I'm good with how things turned out. I mean, like I've said, I've liked the solo score more the more I've listened to it. The first time I listened to it, the first thing I wanted to do after I finished was to listen to Rogue One again. <laughs> but that's me. I love... There's a lot of little things in this score where there's like one or two tracks where a theme is just used in a big bold way, but then it's also used in other tracks that you don't really notice until after you've listened to it a few times and you really have the theme fixed in your head. Like yeah. the instrumental renditions of the Infant's Nest theme. And, and the uh, the sort of, like, slow, morose version of the heist march when Beckett dies. Yeah. The, the, there's just little touches like that that are very cool. That That's the sort of thing that I love in a, in a uh, multi-thematic score, where the more you listen to it, the more you pick up on those subtleties and those reuses in different contexts. Oh, I want to talk about one of the track titles really quickly. Okay. The the big Kessel Run track, where you have TIE Fighter Attack, and you have the Asteroid Field, and you have the Star Wars theme on speed, on the CD is called Reminiscence Therapy, which I think is just a beautiful, passive-aggressive swipe at the mashing of the nostalgia button. Really? I just think that title encapsulates so beautifully the context that this movie is in that we spend about 45 minutes of this podcast talking about. Uh, John Powell doesn't do a lot of jokey track titles like Giacchino and a couple other composers, but that one, I just think it's beautiful. <laughs> On that note, dear, 
dear sweet listeners, I hope we've mashed your nostalgia button. Ooh. I know. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Scott, for being with me. We will try to be back soon on other topics. If you, dear sweet listeners, would like to get in on our Spectacular Advice series, you can send an email to spectacularadvice at gmail.com with your questions, queries, and suggestions. Otherwise, find us, reach out to us. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you next time. Yeah, we didn't even talk about how hand shot first. Yeah, we did. We did? Yeah. Oh, I missed it. You'll find it when you're editing.